Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a special podcast that is actually a conversation me and my guy, Fate Haygood, had at our church in Austin a couple weeks ago. Now, we were in a series entitled A Peculiar Conversation About Race because as God's people, we are to look peculiar because we belong to someone who's different. And in the midst of this series, I get a text from my guy, Fate Haygood, and he says, hey, I'm going to be in Austin in a couple days. What are you doing? And I said, Fate, what am I doing? I'm talking about race, so I would love to have you come down and help out and do a little conversation with me. So this is what we're doing on the podcast today. I'm playing this from our church that happened a couple weeks ago. Now, here's something weird that's happened to me. In the last week or so, I've heard from a couple people, and Fate even heard this same thing while he was in Texas, saying that he's going down to Austin to be with uh, our church. They said, and people said to me, that's kind of weird that you and Fate are friends. Now, I don't understand what that's all about. Uh, Avery, why do you think people think it's weird that me and Fate are friends? Maybe because you dress different? Uh, yeah, because the man likes to wear suit and ties, except he didn't wear a suit and tie to Westover. Anything else that might be different that make... Because um, I'm so much younger? You don't look too much younger, yes, though. Yes, I'm you way... You look like five years nope, younger. Nope, I'm like 20. Yeah. Way, way younger. Mm. Nevertheless, here is me and my guy, Fate Hey Good, doing the thing, so... Check it out. Now, um, let me give you a little hint. Next week in the podcast, we've got the return of our guy, Tom Wright. So get ready for some awesome next week. And uh, get ready for some awesome right now with Fate Hey Good. Welcome, Fate. How you doing? <laughs> Good. Uh, now, Westover, if you've been here for a while, you know this wonderful gentleman to, to the right of me. But you're not going to recognize him because this is the first time I've ever seen him. In a church service, wearing like normal people clothes. Wow. <laughs> so I'm very honored that like you would like dr- dress down. Is this dressing down for you? Suit and tie are regular church clothes. <laughs> oh, okay. <All> right. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I agree. Um, get my suit and tie on. Um, just like JT said, right? The Justin. T- okay, no. All right, all right, all right. Now, if you don't know this wonderful gentleman to my right, it is Fate Haygood. He has been with us a few times before. If you've ever been to Los Angeles, I would encourage you, if you're ever going to, to stop by the Metropolitan Church. It's in Carson, California, and uh, Fate is the founding minister. It's been around for two, 20 years. two decades. Wow. Let's... Amen. And today, his wonderful wife is with... Would you like yes. to introduce your wife to us? That's my wife, Myra Haygood, mm-hmm. the love of my life, the light of my day, God's gift to me. Mm-hmm. Now, she just started at a new school this year as the principal, Yes. which uh, for all of you educators, can you imagine starting a new job, a new school as a principal during this time in this place? So much love to you. You are in our prayers. Thank you for the work that you do. It is very valuable and we are deeply appreciative of it. So thank you so much. So on Monday, I get a text from Fate and he says, hey, I'm going to be in Texas I'm available if you want me to come hang out on Sunday. And I said, well, yeah, Uh, I happen to have started a sermon series on race. So I figure this might work out. Sure. It might work out. So uh, the sermon series, now let me catch you up. So this is a a conversation that Fate and I are going to have. Part of the reason we want to do this as a conversation is because one of the things I think it's most vital for us to learn how to do as people 
is to have a conversation, have healthy dialogue, because unfortunately, there's not a lot of healthy dialogue these days. Zero. Yes. And so what we want to do is have a healthy dialogue. What we hope as people is that the way that we can reflect our identity as God's people is in the way that we treat other people who are created in the image of God. So the text that we are using for the foundation of the series is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. If you have a Bible, you want to turn there. If not, the words are going to be on the screen underneath me as I invite all of us now to stand up for the reading of God's word. So from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. Please be seated. People usually don't read with me when I do that. I kind of like that. Partly because I couldn't see the words very well. I was kind of, I think I got this memorized. Now, we're using this, but there is a, a translation from the King James that has that same verse that's translated a little different. Okay, can we put those words on the screen? In the King James, that same text, do we have it? Maybe? No? Okay, in that same text in the King James, instead of where it says, okay, here it is, but you, ye, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, peculiar people. Now, in the English, the kind of like the, the fourth possible interpretation of the word peculiar isn't just in the ones that we're used to. The, the first couple are like, you're different, you're unique, you're special. But the fourth definition is that you are possessed by. <clears throat> and so when the King James talks about this as a peculiar people, both that we look different, but the reason we look different is because we are God's people. We are possessed by someone who's different. And so when we have this conversation about race, it's going to look peculiar, it's going to be different because we are possessed by one who is different. So when it comes to talking about race, we do this different because we're God's people. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So when we talk about race, it want, we need to look different. And including the way that we even have conversations with people, especially who are different. Who are different. We need to learn how to be different in the way that we converse. And so fate is here. And if you didn't notice, he's a, a black... I feel like everyone knows you're a black person by now. They should. Yeah, they should. They should. But here's a ground rule, which we all should know. Like, we should all know this, but let me just state the obvious. We don't expect one white person to, re, to be the purveyor of every white person's experience. And the same is true with a black person. We don't expect you to be a monolith of all black people. Amen. Okay? And so in the same way that you wouldn't want me to say, this is what it's like to be white. Right? Because every one of you is like, nah, it looks a little off on this. Um, we don't expect any individual to represent an entire group of people, but we do expect you to represent your experience as a person. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. Are we all good with that? Amen? Yes? People say amen a lot more when you hear fate. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like that at all. All right, fate. So here's the thing. When, when you talk about race in a white church, there are three questions that come up. Talk about race in a white church, three questions will inevitably come up. First question is, what about abortion? Second question is, yeah, but I, I didn't own slaves. And the third question is, can, can you just stick to the gospel? The questions always come up. In a black church, from your experience, when you talk about race, what are the questions that come up? What are the statements that come up? How will we survive? What do you mean, how will we survive? Race for us isn't about livelihood, it's about life. 
It's not about lifestyles. It's about whether or not we will survive, um, period. That's what it's about. It's, it's about, uh, um, will I survive this encounter? Will my children make it home? Yeah. Yeah. There was a uh, terrible incident. I received an email from our school district, and it said that some students from our middle school and high schools have uh, gone to neighborhoods and stolen Black Lives Matter uh, yard signs. And then the email said that one of the students said a racial slur. In the neighborhood I live in, in the school district I'm a part of. So I hear this and I think, oh, this stupid kid, these stupid kids have possibly messed up their future. Because you do something when you're 16, 17, like this, it can drastically alter your future. When you hear that story, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? For kids? Whatever. If it was kids. It's kids, yeah, kids who did that. Just kids being kids, being knuckleheads. Most kids are knuckleheads. And so they just do dumb stuff. That's because true. they're kids. Mm-hmm. Um, um, had they not been kids, that's a completely different narrative. But when I see kids do it, I said they're just being dumb. Yeah. Um, um, now, of course, there's always backstory to everyone. Um, but I can't, I can't interpret what three kids, three or four kids did, um, probably on a whim, um, and claim they are this or that. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes when you meet their parents or see their culture, then you understand that it, this wasn't just about kid stuff. This was about what they have been um, breastfed their entire lives. Um, but still, it, it is hard to, to blame kids without making those who, who reared them complicit in what they have done. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's just kids being kids, most of us when we were kids did dumb stuff, um, stuff we regret. We did stuff um, as guys. We called and said and touched um, women in ways we should never have. And I don't mean grown women. I mean just how we interacted with the other girls, etc., which we would never do now. Um, um, but we were just knuckleheads and did dumb stuff. Um, and so when you see kids do stuff, sometimes it's just a matter of kids being kids. But when you can contextualize it, when you see um, their parents, when you see their culture, then suddenly you understand, oh, this wasn't just kids being kids. This was a reflection of their rearing. Mm-hmm. But I, I couldn't judge some kids just based on, you know. Yeah. So, so my first thought is the long-term effects on kids for doing something stupid. It took me a second to go, wait a minute, what about kids who don't look like my kids and how this would affect them? I, I, my initial impulse wasn't for the experience of those who were on the other side of this. And I, I thought to myself, that's very typical of, of me at least, and maybe I'm not the only one, but to naturally filter everything through the experience of people who were, who were just like me. And one of the things that seems to be very important these days for a church like this church and I'm not saying this is a Westover issue, but for most white churches, what I'm trying to say, there's a high priority to look diverse. 
because no one wants to appear to be racist. But what often is forgotten is the importance of not just looking diverse, but being equitable, to be in a place where everyone's, uh, the image of God and the essence of God in each person individually is, is appreciated. And so I, I know you often find yourself in white spaces. When, when you find yourself in a white space, what is it like to be the one person, maybe on the stage, who looks different from everyone else in the seats? Well, well for me, um, if you're just asking me specifically, um, I, I, don't, I don't really have problems with that. Um, for me specifically. Um, but that is because I have zero problem with my blackness. Zero. So I have no problem being who I am wherever I am. So if, if I'm with a whole bunch of white folks, I'm fake. But with black folks, I'm fake. I'm pretty much the same dude everywhere. Um, and so I don't have a problem with that. I, I, I was not raised to feel inferior to anyone. Um, that is not how um, my mother raised me. That is not how... Um, um, at Figueroa Church of Christ, where I was, got my spiritual formation, that was not how we were raised. Um, if anything, it was the opposite. <laughs> you ought to be happy I'm here. <laughs> you know, um, we, were, we were brought up with a lot of self-sufficiency. Um, but it also puts me in a space where I have very little tolerance for, uh, for people who who decide that because I am black or um, that they can treat me as if I'm some kind of way. Um, what do you mean? Well, treat you uh, uh, I don't, I very seldom feel a reason to, to turn down my blackness because I'm around white folks. I just pretty much just am myself. Um, um, culturally, even communicatively, I, I communicate with everybody the same way. And sometimes that becomes a problem um, because what I have found out is that often culturally, um, black folks and white folks uh, communicate differently. Uh, 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 and I'm not talking about slang. I'm, I'm talking about the essence of how we communicate. Give me an example. Well, um, I have found, and this is not always because it depends on <laughs> depends on which white folk you're around. <laughs> but I have found that generally, oftentimes when I'm speaking to, to, to white folks, especially even my brothers and sisters, um, polite discourse is a high priority. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so being non-offensive is important. Mm-hmm. Whereas black folks. It's not a matter of whether you're not being offended or not. You need to understand and hear what I am saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. and so, so we will often end up speaking around each other or a person will get offended. Um, for example, I have a friend. I won't mention his name. Um, um, he's a preacher, white guy. And um, he was talking to me about race and um, his struggles with uh, trying to bring about um, reconciliation where he was. And I told him, dude, the problem is you're racist. Because he was. Um, he wasn't a racist, i.e., I want to go string up black folks. He was a racist, i.e., uh, uh, he was very paternalistic in his demeanor. 
i.e. Uh, let me go help these poor black folks understand. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, that's racist. And he disagreed with me. And he said, but brother, I love you. I said, dude, you don't have to I love you, me. Don't I love you like I love you is a shield against us having a real conversation. But, but that's, because, that's because that's how black folks communicate. Um, um, I felt he was being deflective, so I told him, you know, you, you loving me or not loving me is irrelevant to this conversation. I don't think you love me less because you disagree with me. You just disagree with me. Um, but if the conversation gets too, too rough, you got to throw, but yeah, brother, I love you. Dude, really? That's what we're doing? Yeah. But the issue is that he was saying there is a way of doing things. Let me help you do the way of things that I do. Absolutely. As though you need to be helped by, by me. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and that's a problem. That's a problem. You know, that's a problem. Um, I, for example, I, I refuse to tell Jewish people how to feel about the Holocaust. I refuse to. Because I don't know. I can, I can feel bad about what went on in Auschwitz. Um, it can hurt my feelings. Um, but I don't, I don't have a visceral gut reaction like they do for the damage done to them as a people um, um, as, as almost an ontological genocide you know to I, I, don't, I don't know how that you know so I'm, I'm not going to tell a Jewish person I'm not going to tell a woman <laughs> you know mm-hmm. how to feel about being a woman what makes you think you know what it means to tell me what it feels like to be a black man. Have you lost your mind? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but see, when I say that, it, it sounds like I'm being overtly confrontational or trying to, to interrupt our communication or discourse, which I'm absolutely not. And, and, and neither am I judging you as a horrible person. I'm just speaking to you what I think is truthfully going on between us right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. is, it, is it big ways of saying, no, you don't know how to understand you know, slavery that ha- started you know, 400 years ago, or is it m- more subtle ways that we try to minimize the experience of what it's like to be black today? It's both. It's both. It's both. Um, um, as a black person, and this is my, my experience, but it's the experience of several others I know, I cannot decontextualize my life from race. Neither can I decontextualize my experience from from slavery, from the Atlantic Passage, from segregation, from Jim Crow, from... uh, I cannot separate my experience from that as an American citizen. That is my American history. That is not a study for me. And so... so, (laughs) <laughs> the damages that happened to to black folks then is absolutely affecting what goes on with black folk now. Um, even though it was in some cases 400 years ago. What are ways that that white people minimize what it means for you to be a black man with, with that being your experience today. Because I, I don't think someone said, well, you know, s- slavery didn't happen. People aren't saying that Jim Crow or redlining or whatever didn't exist. 
but it's probably more, there's probably a lot of subtle ways that someone like me would accidentally do that. Or, um, well, we let y'all vote. <laughs> that was then. You're just like me. It happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, 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 that's not really racist. They didn't really mean that. Why do you hate policemen? Why, why, why don't blue lives matter as much as black lives? Those are conversations that if we, if we inverted them, if we, if we said that, um, that, that why, do, why do blue lives matter but white lives don't? See, suddenly it becomes, well, see, see, we, see we see history as informing what's going on now. Um, and I understand that a, a person has grown up white in America would not have to, to see things that way. That is not their experience. We've talked about that. That is not their experience. But when we read even who the policemen are, for us, we're going to go back to slavery for policemen. Because the first, for the first police badges that black folks see in, in American history were not you know, the extension of the bobbies from, from England coming over to... No, no. Our first experience for, of badges were, were the, the militia that the slave owners used to control slaves. And they had a badge that looked surprisingly exactly like the police badges of the day. Now, some police might say, well, that's, you know, that's a huge jump in logic. Well, of course, well, I mean, you know, if that's not ex- your experience... You can afford to think that way. But I literally cannot afford to, to be dismissive of things. Now, I'm not, a big, <laughs> I'm not a big conspiracy guy. I'm not that dude. I got friends who are, so I don't have like charts and, <laughs> you know, I'm not that guy. Um, but I do respect history. And I do respect um, experiences. And I do expect even my research, some of which is simply anecdotal. But um, in my circles, as I've taught at, at universities and colleges, as I have um, intersected in black and white churches, sometimes talking about race, um, and I've, I've asked this question so many times, and it, it's almost always the same. If, if I have a room full of black and white professional guys, all professionals with several degrees, all of them in there, uh, on paper, they all look the same. If you took the race off, they would look all exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And when I ask them one question, how many times have you been pulled over by the police for something that's not speeding or not a traffic thing? Most of the white guys say, hey, once or not at all. Almost every time, the black guys, five times, six times, seven times, every time. And I'm not talking about gangbangers, which, uh, um, uh, which I have no, I grew up around gangbangers, so I have no problem with gangbangers. 
Um, but that's what we do. We immediately say, well, they were gangsters. They were, you know, they were gang members. They were, no, they, they weren't gangsters. They weren't gang members. These are doctors, lawyers, educated dudes, you know. I still remember when I was, <laughs> I was pulled over one time. I was, it was after evening service because we had a real church. <laughs> <laughs> we believed in the Lord's name. <laughs> So after evening service, I was leaving church, um, headed home. Same route I always take. These policemen pulled me over. And uh, it was one, week, one white guy, one black guy. I said, okay, officer, you know, why are you pulling me over? He said, get out the car. I said, okay, I got out the car. He immediately started putting me in handcuffs. No reasoning, just going to put me in handcuffs. I said, well... You know, I'm the pastor of the church right here. Do you really want the members of the church who are leaving evening service to drive by and see you handcuffing the pastor? And so he stopped. He still had me outside the car, though. He said, sir, uh, we ran your plates. And um, um, this car, its plates aren't registered. I said, okay. I said, well, was I speeding? You know, did I run a light or something? I'm trying to figure out why are you running my plates anyway? He says, no, we just followed you and ran your plates. And I said, well, let me, can I get my, because uh, you have to be very careful. I said, can I get my registration? All right. I showed him my registration. I said, on my registration, you see that my registration and this car had the same VIN number. This license plate, DMV sent me this license plate, and they told me to just use that one until they send me the next one because they made a mistake. I said, but as you can see, I am paid up. It's this car. It even, <laughs> it even has this license plate on it. You can see that. Um, he said, yeah, I see that. Um, are you sure this is your car? I'm like, dude, my name, <laughs> same name, the same... I don't have too many white friends who've had these experiences. And that's just one. I've had so many. I've had several, you know. So, so, so when you talk about dealing with race uh, and the intersection of, of black men and policemen, um, it becomes a very uh, scary encounter. Now, the flip of that is my literal best friend, one of my literal best friends, um, he's in the Bay Area in, um, in, up, up in Richmond, San Francisco area. His name is Al Wilson. He's been a, well, he's a retired police officer now. He, he was a police officer for 30-something years. So, I mean, it's not that I look at policemen as, you know, because a person is a policeman, therefore they are this or that. What I'm saying is experientially, I know that when I intersect with the police, my encounter, I have to constantly... Make sure that this dude does not think I am any type threat, period. So. so as a peculiar people who don't digress into the, well, I'm either for black people or I'm for law enforcement. Or I'm either for, this is what I experience and therefore any other experience can't be true. Like if we're not going to take like those sort of simplistic options, what does it mean to listen and try to... Ex- 
to try to understand where you're coming from. Because like you just said, like as a white person, that's not my experience. My, you know, when I think of law enforcement, I think of my aunt, I think of the guys I went to school with, like in in similar story to what you're referring to one of your best friends. Like it's, it's a different experience. That doesn't make sense to me, but how do I learn how to be empathetic and understand where you're coming from? Well, the first, first I would say that, um, um, and we're not, we didn't talk, we're not talking about church stuff yet, but if we're just talking about social stuff, um, the language problematic, the language that that pits um, black people as a group of people against law enforcement, like these are the two opposite sides of two antagonistic forces. That's problematic language. Yeah. Uh, so um, you know, and when you really start to vet it, it really starts to get deep. Um, that's problem. But I would say is though is that. Learn to accept people as people. I don't. I don't think you can make up artificial environments and get to know people. I think you have to be in spaces with people that are organic, that are not subject-driven. Um where we live in life together, where, where I come out and hang out with you and, and, and it's all right if you slip up and say something racially insensitive. Um, that, I don't, yeah. that I don't all of a sudden demonize you because of that. Because if we're not in spaces where each one of us can make mistakes, um, we will never, because now you always have to be guarded. That's true. Um, I, I was, in my undergrad, I was uh, taking a poli-sci class. I was a good teacher. Um, and in the poli-sci class, um, we got on race, right? Now, before this, I had a teacher. Her name was Dr. Diana Wolf. Because <laughs> she was a tough lady, just... Her name was Wolf. Anyway, uh, she was teaching English or something in undergrad. And um, she was super smart. Super smart. I made a huge mistake in my poli-sci class. Because when we started talking about race and gender concerning women, um, the only real interaction I had with white women was what I saw on TV. At that point in my life, that's just the truth. Had a few white coworkers, but that was just coworkers. High by, you know, nothing of any substance. And so my only view of white women, especially tall, good-looking, blonde white women, was the same stuff that, that Joel Osteen does to his wife almost every Sunday back in the day. He would always get up and tell dumb blonde jokes about his wife, which I'm even today wondering how he got away with doing that every Sunday. <laughs> but every Sunday. So that's all I knew, you know, the ditzy, that's all I knew. So being in Dr. Wolf's class opened my eyes up that this is a sharp, sharp woman down to earth and powerful. Well, <laughs> in my poli sci class, I said that. But I said it completely wrong. 
What I said was, Dr. Wolf, that is the smartest white woman I have ever met. And he dropped me a grade. (laughs) He immediately dropped me a grade. And I was ticked off. But to this day, I say, you know what? He probably had a right to. Because there's no way I should have been saying that all white women are the caricatures I see on sitcoms. Right. But that was my only reaction. You know what? What? Whatever the narrative was at that time about tall, good looking blonde women. Um, Now, now that I have met a lot of folks and have developed a relationship with a lot of folks. um, Now I know that people are just people. Yeah. Yeah, you got some ditzy white women. But you also have some smart white women. You got some ditzy black women. You also got some smart, you got some knucklehead black guys. Because everybody just people. You got just the whole gamut of people. Um, but if you don't, if you're only in artificial type of environments. Yeah. And, and that story gets told over and over again where, where people live in distance from others. And so they have a, a distant perspective of what they actually are. And so I, I've got a, a friend who's a preacher at a church and he's got someone who struggles with racism. And he thinks... This person was saying, well, everyone in this group is like this. And then my friend asked a follow-up question. Have you ever had a meal with this group of people? No. No. And I think part of what makes church so peculiar is that it's supposed to invite people who come from disparate and different areas and brings them together. So all of a sudden, that sort of ignorance based on distance subsides. Absolutely. Because... When there is a failure to connect, what we often do is we hold on to the expectation that the worst of them is true for all of them, and the best of me is true for all of us. Because what we often do is those who are different from us, we expect them to be perfect, and we make excuses for those who are like us. And, and I think that's the power of what church can do, and that's why I think we can have a peculiar conversation, because it's supposed to bring people together who are different. And so you said, okay, well, social to church. That's the language you just used. What do you think the church's call is in to create spaces for that or to create opportunities for that? Because church often looks like people want to typically be in religious communities and communities in general with people like them. Well, um, I think, wow, I think church's problem is often a power issue. Um, that churches, unfortunately, are often power centers. They are, and I'm not anti-hierarchical, I'm not that dude either, but they are set up in power hierarchies. And they, they leverage power to do things. Um, and they become communities based on, on power and control and comfort. And Anything that disrupts those things, um, the system immediately attacks them with anti-spiritual antibodies, almost always. Therefore, if you have a church, by and large, if you have a church that is attempting to be multiracial, multicultural, etc., usually you'll have a church um, that is not really multicultural. There's usually one dominant culture 
that is exercising the power and control, and they will have other cultures or other other races or other ethnicities in order to uh, meet some ideological preference, i.e., the church ought to look like this, yeah. or to assuage some inter guilt or turmoil at the state of the world or at their personal feelings of of inadequacy um, as persons because they don't have any uh, kind of hodgepodge of people around them. Um, But often the churches aren't multicultural at all. The churches are often one culture. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's just, you know, I mean... I could call Metro multicultural because we got a couple of white folks there, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I mean. So, I mean, I, I mean, I would love for it to be, but honestly, you know, you know, it's not. It's 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 culturally primarily uh, middle class, lower middle class, African American folks. We don't have um, who who minister to people who are for lack of less crass terms, a couple of classes above and a couple of classes below. Um, but if you look at us culturally, you would, there's no way you'd walk into our church and say, oh, this is a white church. No, it is not. You would never say that. I didn't say that when I was there. Um, I didn't say that at all. Um, and we said amen a lot. <laughs> and you did, and you did. Uh, and they liked the story that I started with when, when I was... College, there's a high school kid I was working with doing landscaping for ACU. <laughs> you know the story. And he went up to me and said, Hey, so you're a preacher? And I go, Yeah. And he goes, are, This is a, a, a young black man. And he goes, So are you one of those white preachers that tell stories? And I was like, Yeah, I am one of those white people who tells stories. So they, they all like that story. Yeah, at Metro. Because there, there is a difference, right? Absolutely. Like there's a difference. And so. Uh, there's a uh, musician named Lecrae who's from Texas. And uh, in. Of course he is. Of course he is. What's wrong with that? <laughs> nothing at all, Luke. Nothing at all. Come on, man. Super passive aggressive, but go ahead. But it's not passive aggressive. <laughs> he reps Houston, whatever. Anyway, what, okay, so he has a book that, that's coming out soon. And he, uh, in his book, he talks about his experience of being a black person who was often put on white stages because churches wanted to have the appearance of a black man. And he has some pretty strong words that I'm going to say, if you want to read those, I don't want to misquote them, so go get his book. Um, But he makes some strong comments about how it it made him feel as though he was just performing so that they could have this feeling like, oh, we have some black person on stage. And the idea that he had something to add more than just his music was kind of minimized. And so I said, well, well, what what can churches look like if if we're not going to do that? And he said, well... One is you can partner with other churches. So if you're a white church, you can partner with a black church. And that's a great way because it's realistic of going, this is how we do church, this is how you do church. We can partner on things, we can support each other, but, you know, that's it. Um, you know, the, the normal option is what you just described as saying, hey, we're going to have some diversity that makes us feel good, but doesn't actually respect the uniqueness and the image of God in the way that church can look like for different cultures. Okay, so the diversity option of you know, playing a game. The other option is, well, let's partner with churches that look different from us. And the third option is the one you just kind of mentioned. And he was saying, well, this is the more painful one because it requires some messy sort of self-sacrificial ways of going, okay, how should we do this? What do you think it would look like if we did this your way? What if we gave up the ability to say, this is how we always do it, and instead, let's do it your way? And that, that's hard. That's really challenging. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I had a friend um, in Riverside, and um, he, we, we sat down for lunch, and he was trying to um, have uh, um, racial um, type of just, um, not assimilation, but um, um, uh, for lack of a word, how to be nice with one another yeah. um, with the black church across and he said, no, but he said, but it's too small of a city for us, for them to be, you know, five blocks from us. How can we just merge these two together? <clears throat> and, and I said, listen, I get it. I love your heart. And I do. I said, but I asked him some strong questions. Are you willing to give up power? Because if you're not willing to give up power, it's a non-starter conversation. I said, okay, the black guy down the street who's been preaching 40 years at that church makes a third of your salary. A third of your salary. Are you willing to merge resources such that you might have to take a pay cut in order to do this? Are you willing? Uh, And he looked at me and said, nah. Nah, nah, I would never do what he does. I would never work for, you know, 40 grand a year. I'm not doing that. I appreciated that. When we were in a space where he could talk to me straight, he knew I wasn't going to judge him as being this horrible person because if I was making $120,000 and you told me in order for us to bring this other dude on staff, I was going to drop to 80 so he could come up to 80. That's a serious conversation I'm going to have there with my wife and other people, and I don't know if I could have done it. So I, I, I felt him, but my point was, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about things ideologically and, oh, feel good, have a catharsis because, you know, we really talked about it, and, wow, I feel good that I'm, I'm woke now. Well, if, if, if you're not willing to give up power, if you're not willing to go the Jesus model, to divest yourself of your glory in order to bring about the kingdom agenda, then really what you're doing is you're just trying to feel good that you're not really that bad of a person because you feel bad about another person's situation. And dude, you know, again, I'm not judging. We all have that. But if we're going to be real, you know, let's not have these because now we're frustrated. See, now we start to do stuff and we, we start moving toward things. And when, when the rubber starts to hit the road, I, uh, two, two years ago at Pepperdine, um, they had me do a, a session on black and white church. It was three years ago now. I forgot this is the last year. I remember this. You remember, <laughs> you remember that's right. Because you called me up and said, hey, can I have a picture of you? I was like, no, I don't want you to have a picture of me for this class on yes, what white yes, people are like. Yes, yes. No, I, I'm not going to forget well, come that. Come on, dude. You like the, you like the prototypical... Pretty Careful. boy with the Careful. tight jeans. You know, I had to put you up there. <laughs> I welcome you into my home. This is how you treat me. So, so anyway. Not that tight. <laughs> well, I put some black pretty boys up there too. So it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't that. I was just trying to show the difference in the younger guys and the older guys. But we started talking about. It's getting um, hot here, guys. Can you put Nancy down a little bit? We talked about doing things together ecclesiologically. And I said, well. Let's not even talk theology. Let's talk about the ecclesiology of the churches. If we're going to try to have uh, multicultural and really take the city for the Lord, are are the white elderships willing to come closer to the African-American paradigm? And are the the African-American 
elderships and leaderships willing to come closer to so that we can come together and find something? You know, are you willing um, as a white eldership to to go to a situation where the minister, um, the pastor, teacher, whatever you want to call him, has as much authority in decision making as this group of people? Are you willing to do that? That was a strong no to. <laughs> that was a no, not at all. <laughs> or, or even on the other side, you know, as, as a black minister, are you willing to come fully under the authority of dudes who can on a whim dismiss you? And, and I know there's a lot of history behind both of those. And most of them are like, no. As a matter of fact, here recently, I won't call any names, but a lot of your contemporaries who have started churches have started to reject that elder-led model. I'm not, I'm not speaking of right and wrong. I'm saying they start to, to reject it for the same reason that black folks have rejected. I'm not talking because I actually believe that is a biblical model. But what has happened is when you, when you start talking about as opposed to function, you start talking about power, control. See, now it's a thing. Um, and that's what I'm saying. When you talk about racial reconciliation, when you talk about ecclesiological reconciliation, if you can't deal with the power issue, if you can't give up power, if you can't divest yourself of your glory, you can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think what, what we find is a, a lot of people want to talk about race for a plethora of reasons, good and bad. But the issue about race is that it's far more complicated and layered than maybe we want to make it out to be. Absolutely. We like the idea of, hey, we're going to switch a pulpit every once in a while, which makes us comfortable. Sure. We're in our safe space. You know, we, or we which can visit. is good. And it's, it's a great place to start. But sure. the, the conversation about race is going to be more uncomfortable. And it Absolutely. requires a level of humility to listen. It requires a level of forgiveness to understand that you're going to step on my toes and make me uncomfortable. And I'm going to say some things that are might be inappropriate and I might step on your toes in a way that are, are careless and thoughtless. But the only way we can have this is there is some sort of baseline understanding between us. That there is a calling that creates both of us as a part of the same family. Even if the parts of the family we're a part of are different. They feel different. They look different. Absolutely. Because otherwise, what we're going to see is there, there are some pretty substantial differences and all we're going to focus on are those. And we're going to think, well, you said this and it offended me. And you said this and it made me feel uncomfortable. And so I don't want to do this anymore. But if you understand the peculiar calling that each and every one of us has, it goes, I don't have a choice to say, is this comfortable or not? But is this right or not? If this is who God called me to be, then all of a sudden I have to experience this uncomfortable tension because this is who God called me to be. Because Jesus said, or because Paul calls us to what God had called him, is th- there is this ministry of reconciliation. Absolutely. It's not a choice. It's not no. like, hey, if this is comfortable, I'll do it. But if this is what God has called me to, therefore I do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the text you chose, uh, you know, that idea of peculiar people, um, not strange, but people who belong to God. Once we can get out of our own self-ownership and understand that we are created of God, we are royal in God, but we belong to God, and it is a purposeful ownership God has to, that we might show forth the praises of his glory so, so that, that we don't have choices in this. We don't have self-ownership. When we came to him, we denied ourselves. We don't have self-ownership. And so then our motivation is not survival even. Our motivation 
is the glory of the shepherd. The shepherd worries about the sheep's survival. The sheep's purpose is to give glory to the shepherd. Um, and I think sometimes when we, when we start looking at it theologically that we need to probably ask ourselves, do we really trust the shepherd? Do we really trust God? Um, you talk about that ministry of reconciliation. Um, and that, you know, you think it's a hard conversation for white folks. In this climate, it's super hard for black folks to have that conversation. Because there's a whole lot of anger. But black Christians also understand that God calls to sacrifice. But the the reverse narrative or, or, or the reply to that is going to be, have we not sacrificed enough? So in order for us to be one with our brothers and sisters who love Jesus like we do, we have to sacrifice more. The crazy answer is often yes, but that's a hard sell. <laughs> that's a hard sell. That's a hard sell. You know, that's a hard sell. So it's not, it's not like it's this easy conversation. It's hard for everyone. Yeah, yeah. that is. And the reason we do this is because we remember our identity as followers of Christ. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.